Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Books and Nachos. This is Brock, thrilled to be back here at Books and Nachos. It has been a while. Today, I am here with a review of the new book, Bad Man, by Dathan Auerbach. Review copy courtesy of Doubleday Books. As many of you know, I read a lot of books, but suspense, terror, and horror literature, however you want to phrase it, isn't my usual go-to. So when this opportunity came about to review a book out of my wheelhouse, I jumped at the chance. I am not unfamiliar with this genre, though I admit I have read many older classic terror and horror literature examples than modern ones, which seemingly fit in here perfectly with Bad Man, as it is likely best described as a slow-burn sort of suspense psychological thriller. Actually, I expected more gore and horrific scenes, and there are a couple. This book is not about the shock. It is about one man's demons getting the better of him, a man who is just not able, emotionally, psychologically, or physically, up to the challenge of the mystery before him. And if you think I am now going to tell you that this is a story of a man overcoming all of those obstacles and becoming a better man for it, and a hero to all he knows and loves, you'd be incredibly wrong. That is not this book. Who wants to read that book? Bad Man is the second novel of Reddit author sensation Dathan Arabach. He self-published a version of the stories he was posting on Reddit into a successful book called Pen Pal, and publisher Doubleday took notice, and here we are. I have not read Pen Pal, but reading up on the book for this review, I think I might want to check it out sometime. Dathan Arbach is being compared to a young Stephen King, and that's wonderful for him. I will leave others who may be more qualified, or think they're more qualified, to make that correlation. Without a doubt, Stephen King's influence has been ubiquitous on generations of writers. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention I saw and felt the similarities in the tone and atmosphere of Bad Man to the novel of The Shining, yet not so much in the descent of the lead character. After reading this novel, it is clear Dathan Auerbach knows how to write for the genre and could have a bright future ahead. The book opens with the disappearance of Eric, a playful three-year-old at the time under the care of his older brother Ben. They visit the local supermarket in their deep southern town in a chapter that, as a parent, I can only say, is one of our worst nightmares. You turn around and the kid is gone. The book jumps five years, and Ben, now in his early 20s, is still looking for his missing brother. And, much to his frustration, he seems to be the only one. With any small lead or idea that might help, he goes to the detective on the case, Duquesne. Ben's father does all he can to exist and brings some money in. His stepmother has disconnected from the living world, turning inward as the sadness of losing her little boy has consumed her. And Ben, out of options, and the family in need of the money takes an overnight job stocking shelves at the very supermarket where his brother disappeared five years prior. There we meet the vindictive and secretive store manager Palmer, an old, sickly, cranky woman who runs the bakery, Beverly, who has a grandchild we meet later on, and co-workers Frank and Marty. As Ben continues to work nights with Marty and Frank, they become friends. Yet, strange things start to happen. 
Ben is almost killed by falling boxes, is almost locked in the cold storage freezer. Strange clues like his brother's missing child flyer pop up in his locker with strange symbols written on it. His brother's favorite stuffed animal toy suddenly appears in the lost and found five years later. And his co-worker Marty tells him he saw his missing brother just a couple of weeks ago. Ben, surrounded by haunting memories and disparaged people, and driven by his own guilt, starts to renew his search for his brother with new fervor. And as he soon sees, perhaps this is a mystery best left unsolved. That is the basic plot and the list of the cast of characters that surround our main character, Ben. The characters are there to help serve the thriller mystery side of the novel. We are not here for a suspenseful mystery story, no, we certainly don't have a Sherlock Holmes character leading that charge. The suspense comes from the feeling that we are one step away from something terrible happening, whether it is Palmer walking back into his office while Ben is snooping around, or when the team uses the industrial bailer, if this is the time something will go horribly wrong with the outdated piece of machinery. It's about the suspense of, why does Marty's neighbor's eight-year-old daughter have a long scar on her face? Why is there a padlock on the outside of a bedroom door? Why Ben is having vivid, violent nightmares. Why does it seem everyone is lying to Ben, and the like. In this fashion, the book is quite effective. While I felt ahead of the mystery at times, my first suspicion regarding Eric's location was practically spot on, the author uses his cast of characters to effectively drive Ben's mistrust and uncertainty, setting up copious red herrings and tangential plot elements that all didn't play out in a satisfying fashion, but serve the overall tone and help create the tension. The author succeeds in setting a pervasive, bleak, desperate tone. Every character in this book is sad, has had bad things happen to them, or is stuck in bad relationships, crammed living spaces, and or with physical or mental liabilities. No one has any money. There are no aspirations. No one leaves this desolate, dying little town. There are elements of classic horror all over this book. The grocery store is a haunted house. The antiquated industrial bailer in the store is set up just waiting for an unfortunate, gruesome, life-changing accident. There's a spooky forest that people seem to only think to explore at night. There's an unexpected items left behind with no real explanation. And with the physical description of Ben, combined with his actions both in the real world and the thoughts inside his head, you can make the argument that he is sort of a monster. All of these classic elements are given a bit of a modern spin and effectually create a suspenseful, eerie novel. This isn't gory horror, and I wasn't ever too creeped out with all this. I was more disturbed by the terrifying haunting of these parents who have lost a child, the brother who was steeped in guilt over losing his brother, the what-if of a brother still being alive. And as the book goes on and these things start happening at the store and Ben starts to react to them, it turns into this just constant waiting and waiting for that something terrible that you know is coming to happen. Those elements were prevalent to me and made for constant discomfort the more I read on. Deep thematic elements, subtext, social commentary, or allegory, none of these things are prevalent or what this book is about, and nor does it have to be. Some things that are notably missing in the book to the point where it clearly has to be intentional are pop culture references and technology. And I noticed it so much because we don't have a definitive year of when this book takes place. If it's in the book, I missed it. And pop culture references and technology can help the reader figure out the time period. 
There are a few, if any, mentions of television, radio, personal music devices. There are telephones, but not cellular phones. There is a considerable mention of, and plot portions devoted to, video footage from security cameras. So if I had to guess, I would think this novel takes place sometime in the late 80s, maybe early 90s. Book starts maybe 1985, 1989, and then jumps five years to maybe 1990, 1994. What I loved about the lack of technology and the lack of pop culture references or brand names here is that it adds to the bleakness, the lack of joy, the poverty, desperation, melancholy of the characters and this town. There is no escape. They are all just existing and taking the lot that they are given one day at a time. The main character, Ben, is written in a way you simultaneously sympathize with, feel sorry for, and dislike him. Ben is a large, lumbering young man in his early 20s. He has a penchant for sketching and carries his notebook with him at all times. And he's labored with a bad leg courtesy of a car accident, which took place sometime after the disappearance of his brother and before the book proper begins, which I took as literal damage to his already damaged young man. Damage that those around him instantly see and can't ignore. You know, symbolism. Ben is not stupid, but he isn't the smartest man. He doesn't know his own strength, doesn't realize his size and how it affects others. He pushes himself physically and mentally to the point where he somewhat tortures himself. And he is, of course, tortured with his own guilt and the guilt he feels from his stepmother and projects that his dad is throwing some his way. We follow Ben as he obsesses with his need for answers to follow up on any sort of lead. We see him deal with his own limitations within his head, get in his own way, and how that leads to some bad decisions. And of course, you empathize with this young man who is convinced he is doing the right thing when perhaps he'd be better off finding a different way or a different place to exist and to function. There are times when we are reading Ben's vivid and surrealistic dreams, in addition to when he hears voices in his head. These parts add to the psychological unease and to the danger you feel for the people around and interacting with Ben. But I didn't feel these elements paid off. Conversely, we have a chapter or two where we see Ben collects objects in his grandfather's suitcase, objects he connects to memories from happier times with his family as a much younger boy, and when his life started to turn away from that towards the realities of this life. This suitcase of memories does pay off towards the end on multiple levels, and I was quite happy with that. Ben is a wonderfully flawed character whose traits imbue and accentuate the tone and atmosphere of sadness and desperation in this book. The one other character we get to know the best is Marty, the co-worker of Ben, who adds life to this book when he is around. I read after I finished the book, the author crafted the character of Marty and the relationship Marty and Ben have after one the author had with a former co-worker, and I can totally see that in their interactions and how spirited Marty is written. Ben and Marty have similar situations, complicated brother relationships, let's just put it that way, family challenges, and limited opportunities. Marty has a more positive outlook on life, and that influence renews Ben's hope, reinvigorates it for the first time in years. Hope is a commodity to these characters in this book, even if they are unaware of that fact. Once Marty has his accident, he and Ben share one more parallel, yet Marty's absence in Ben's life results in Ben's fall back into suspicion and despair, and he burns one bridge after another. Whereas Marty is able to persevere through the ordeal, putting a final stamp on their juxtaposition. The other characters I mentioned earlier in the brief plot summary exist as role players, foils, suspects, fuels, or sources for misdirection in Ben's journey here, and none have character arcs to focus our time on. 
Ben's relationship with his broken father isn't mined as much as you would expect. The contentious relationship Ben has with Duquesne, the detective assigned to Eric's missing person case, actually gets more time. And it comes to a head in a fairly standard scene of the proverbial cards being put on the table early in the climax. Given the numerous scenes of Ben and Duquesne together, we get a real sense of what they think of one another. And I enjoyed reading Duquesne making his accusations because you do see how he came to those conclusions, just as we see how Ben came to his conclusions throughout the novel, yet both the professional and amateur sleuth just got more wrong than right. With the slow burn approach, the book started to get a bit repetitive in some chapters in the middle section. No doubt they were kept in to add to the atmosphere instead of moving the plot along, and I understand what the author was doing, but it started to feel like the book was meandering. The climax in the forest at the end was the only time I would classify this book as a page-turner. By that point, I had enough with the psychological horror. I wanted some answers, and I wanted to know how this all ended. It would not have been right for Bad Man to have a mega-happy, all-is-now-fix-and-their-lives-will-change-for-the-better ending. This book never indicated that, and I'm glad they didn't go there. I did like the final scene with Ben and Eric, and it played out in a way I did not expect, but feels right. The epilogue is a wonderfully haunting end to this story, a strong button that almost lays to rest by dissatisfaction on some of the resolutions. After we get the expository monologue that fills in some of the blanks in the aforementioned climax and epilogue, you realize there are still too many dangling threads. I can conclude that these are answers not vital to the story, but with the importance placed on some of these threads during the book, I wanted more, or at least a better, explanation. Also, when it turned out Marty was still alive after his accident, I was convinced Ben was seeing a ghost. But once you get through the climax and then the epilogue, clearly that is not the case. And while perhaps a ghost idea has been played out too much in the last 20 years, I could see it playing here because of what the book set up previously with Ben, also because it's yet another terror and horror trope that we did not have previously. I can't say I enjoyed reading bad man enjoy is not the right word it isn't a fun read but i can tell you i was engaged for most of it probably would have liked it to be a little shorter and more concise as it got a little long in the tooth there in chapters where repeating beats or ideas already well covered mr arbach certainly builds up terrific suspense and creates a bleak sour sad world with a lead character you can sympathize with even if you don't necessarily like him Bad Man is a strong effort that I foresee could develop even more of a following for this up-and-coming author. Thank you for joining me today for Books and Nachos. I hope to be back here at Books and Nachos very soon with another book review. Meanwhile, you can hear my Star Wars book reviews at Venganza Media's Star Wars collecting podcast, Star Wars Action News, at SWActionNews.com. Until next time, this is Brock. And I encourage you to support your local bookstores and libraries, and I hope you are enjoying whatever it is you are reading at the moment. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by podsafeaudio.com. 
Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.